Hi guys, welcome to episode 15 of Caranel Talks podcast. It's me, Carrington. And me, Jordan. And today we're going to talk to Professor Nikki Brown. She is an African-American studies professor here at the University of Kentucky. We are so, so excited and we have so much to learn. We are so excited and we have so much to learn. But before we get started, we want to thank our sponsor, Pops. Without further ado, here she is. So I am Nikki Brown. I have a PhD in history. I've been here at UK uh, since September 2019. Uh, I lived before before I moved here to Lexington in UK. I lived in New Orleans for uh, almost 12 years. Uh, so I moved to New Orleans in 2008, and I left in uh, 2018, 2019. And then, uh, before then, I spent three years at an HBCU in, in northern Louisiana called Grambling State University. So yeah, so I've lived almost 15 years in... Louisiana before I moved here, and uh, I'm interested in a lot of different things. I'm interested in uh, visual culture, or, or uh, particularly how visual culture helps to rep- like represents African Americans uh, in various different ways. And I'm interested in Louisiana history, and um, what else? And African American women's history, and photography. And I love to travel, and so and and one of my projects is also working with the Afro Turks of um, of Turkey, who are the people people of African descent who are Turkish, uh, but they are descendants of people who were captured in the slave trade on the eastern side of Africa instead of the western side. I got a lot here, and UK has been great. <laughs> it's been really great. to It supports all of these different endeavors, and I'm really, really happy to be here. That's really cool that you have so many different interests that like connect yeah. to like your love of history. Sure. And I was wondering why you wanted to become a historian. Like, why did you study history? That's a really good. That I think I was just uh, thinking about that very question. We get that question a lot. It was not a smooth or direct path <laughs> to becoming a history professor. Um, I think I would say that uh, actually being a history professor was my second choice. If if one has a second, can, yeah, uh, I really wanted to be a foreign service officer. I really wanted to work for the State Department and travel around the world. And I wanted to be part of what people in international studies call sort of soft diplomacy, which is all about extending culture or supporting different cultural events. Uh, it's all about ex- using American money, yes, to promote American, quote unquote, American values, but really, but some of those values are actually quite good, like democracy and talking things out and not resorting to violence and um, uh, to get to have political power and representation and and having a lot of different people and a lot of different voices come together as one. So I really wanted to do that. And um, when I got to graduate school, I think a lot of people thought the State Department was kind of a, a backup government job that, that you could do so many other things. You could work for the private sector. You could work for a think tank. You could become a professor. So I so when I got to graduate school, I um, at first I wanted I, – I remember this very clearly. I um, spent a couple of years in graduate school, and I thought, you know, I'll take the foreign service exam. And, uh, so, and uh, I talked myself out of it, really, because – uh, someone said, well, you know, if you become a foreign service officer, your first post, post is going to be to Kyrgyzstan, and your first job is going to learn how to spell Kyrgyzstan, <laughs> uh, 
which is because there's a Z and a Y and a K <laughs> somewhere in there. And, and so I didn't do it after my first year. And then and then I finished my qualifying exams and I thought, okay, well, maybe this is a good time to be a foreign service officer. And someone talked me out of it again. And then I wrote my dissertation and I thought that was a good time. Finishing my dissertation, that was a good time to become a foreign service officer. And my parents, very, you know, concerned about me, said, no, no, no. Why don't you try to get that, you know, good academic job first? Because that, that'll be your foundation if the Foreign Service doesn't work out. So it was always, there was always a, another reason, a different sure. reason not to sure. do it. And, um, and uh, very recently, I took the Foreign Service exam, I think in 2016, and as a history professor, yeah, it was, yeah, I don't think I even had to study for it. I, <laughs> but at that point in 2016, they just weren't hiring any more people on the, on the cultural affairs end. They were hiring lots of people on the economic end. Uh, they, they, they have a polit- political track as well. But I wanted to do cultural affairs, and they already had more than enough people for that. So, so I just, so being a professor is, you know, allows me to travel the world and see different things and have a lot of different projects and a lot of, a lot of different re- uh, uh, relationships. Uh, so that's how I got to it, really, just kind of um, always, uh, yeah, yeah. I think if I had a chance to get, go, I, uh, if I had a chance to do it over again, I would um, perhaps listen to my own voice a little bit stronger, sure. uh, a little bit more. I was wondering, like, what in your childhood led you to, like, foreign affairs and diplomacy? Because that's such an interesting route to go. Yeah. And I feel like not a lot of people go that route. Or know about that route. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's what people, we get this question in the history department all the time. What can you do as a history major? And Mm -hmm. people think, well, you can be a history professor or a teacher or work in a museum or something. No, there's all these things you can do. You can work... Uh, for the government, but but you can travel the world working for the government uh, as a foreign service officer. But uh, and to answer your question, uh, this really speaks to my own family's history. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I am African American, and my parents are African American as well. They are both. Now do I think about it? They they are both the uh, the products of the Great Migration. Mm-hmm. I am a product of the Great Migration. Their family, my both my mother and my father, their families migrated from Georgia and North Carolina. Oh, what part of North Carolina? I'm from Raleigh. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, Concord, North Carolina. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then my mother's family, um, uh, they migrated from Concord to Washington, D.C. And my father's family uh, uh, migrated from Athens to Springfield, mm-hmm. Massachusetts. Cool. So I'm glad that we have that connection. Yeah. That's really great. That's really great. They... Um, and so I think travel maybe is in my blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but specifically, before we even think about things like that, I thought to myself, you know, I really want to see what life is like for black people mm-hmm. outside of the United States. And that's because my parents are, um, uh, I, would, I would call them kind of the foot soldiers of the civil rights movement in a sense. They were the people that actually uh, or tried to take the ideas of civil rights and 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 put them into action. Um, my mom was a city council person. My dad was a legal aid, a lawyer for a long time. Um, like so, they really tried to work on equality and giving people voice and so forth uh, in their lives. And so I remember my brother and sister and I. We would be at the kitchen table or dinner table. My parents would ask questions like, 
know, what are black people doing? <laughs> what do black people in Ghana think about Ronald Reagan? Really, you know, what are black people going to do about the struggle? My dad still asks it. So these questions were always at our dinner table. Mm -hmm. And I think that that really led me to think about what was life like for black people who did not live in the United States. And that also helped me. Uh, that would also contribute to that is that I live in, I, I was born in Rochester, New York, which is very close to Canada, which borders Canada. So mm -hmm. Canada and looking at that life was very, um, uh, was, was much of an influence as a history major. I was interested in people like Josephine Baker who went to Paris, and James Baldwin, who went to Paris. Um, I was interested in people who had gone to Ghana um, and or traveled all over the world. I just, I just wanted to know how they experienced being black. Um, not necessarily African-American, but being black in a different part of the world. That's really interesting you say that, because, like, Josephine Baker and James Baldwin, like, they had such a love for Paris and their culture because mm -hmm. they, like, oddly accepted them and their blackness. That's just really interesting you say that because I um, I don't know if you know Hanif Abdi-Rakib, but he, like, has a book that's about, like, black entertainment. Um, and it's, like, a, mm -hmm. it's a collection of his um, essays, and he talks about that. So I just thought that was interesting you, like, pointed uh, that out. Does he, does he currently live in Paris? No, no, he doesn't. Huh. Oh, there was somebody because I think that there is a black uh, African American expatriate who lives mm -hmm. in Paris, who currently conducts um, sort of tours of Black Paris. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, even now, and I mm -hmm. and I and that so that name sounded familiar. But anyway, yes, yeah. yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So that seems like that was a really great that book. Yeah, really influenced you. Mm -hmm, yeah. And uh -huh. also, like, just to segue, um, under your bio on the UK College of Arts and Sciences website, it says you studied, like, international film studies. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about that? Like, was it documentaries? Like, what type of, like, what type of film was it? Well, I looked at, I'm, it's mostly documentary, and it's mostly um, the way people, again, well, the way people sort of represent blackness or the way people think about blackness. I think I, I wonder if I've done that. I, I, I mean, I'm like, I wonder, like, when was the last one I saw? <laughs> uh, you know, this COVID time has really uh, struck a lot of my memory. I, I remember, uh, I think I, I, I put that in relation to the Afro-Turks, okay. the work that I was doing with the Afro-Turks and how they were represented and how um, if the Afro-Turks had an experience of blackness that aligned with the African-American experience of blackness. So I would look at different sort of photography shows or exhibitions and different documentaries about, sort of, uh, yeah, the, the Afro-Turks or at least black people in the Middle East, um, which I think is an, uh, I think that that could become a, a, an area of study. I think so. That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're nice to say that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. How does media and um, looking at those exhibitions really tell a story about, you know, what do you look for when you're thinking about trying to develop that story and that understanding of the Afro-Turks and um, individuals in the Middle East? Huh. I think, well, I would, I, I, because this is a dialogue, I actually am going <laughs> to answer your question with a question, which is, <laughs> like, when you, when you think about the Middle East, uh, or, yeah, when you think about the Middle East, uh, what kind of images come to mind? Typically the ones that I usually see on the news, the media. So if there's like a crisis going on, that's really the only time I ever see. Yeah, it's see. really swayed, really Absolutely. biased. Mm -hmm. 
uh, biased how? I feel like bias, like especially with the Middle East with 9-11, a lot of sure. like um, just like misrepresentation of like their culture and like painting them into terrorists That's right. pretty much. That's right. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So you're talking about like Muslims? Yes. Or, um, and, and not all residents of the Middle East are Muslim. Some mm-hmm. are Christian. Some are Jewish, obviously. Uh, Israel is in the Middle yeah. East. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So it's, yeah. So there's a lot of, uh, it sounds to me like, yeah, what you're saying is that there's a lot of stereotyping. There's a lot of. Um, invoking of terrorism. There's a lot mm-hmm. of conflict. Yeah, yeah. I um, I think I I came to that from from really from that same standpoint. Uh, I think this is where I'll just jump in and talk about the AfroTurks. Um, so my first Fulbright was to could Turkey. You, sorry, could oh. you describe what a Fulbright? Is? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's a State Department thing. So I guess you know what I mean. I guess when I say, well, I want to work for the State Department, I really should have been more specific because I do, <laughs> I, I do in fact, I did in fact work for the State Department, not as a Foreign Service officer, but as a Fulbright scholar. A Fulbright is a, a program. It's ciees.org, and it is a program for students and for U.S. scholars. And if you have a project or for particularly for students, if you want to travel the world teaching English for a couple of years, the Fulbright's the way to go. Um, and you just go to that website, you say that you're a student, and you say um, you would like to f- um, go to uh, uh, Germany to st- uh, teach English as a second language, or you would like to, or, or, or if you have a, pr- a project, uh, for example, one of my um, colleagues, uh, or one of the people that I met years ago, wa- wanted to study how Turkish rugs are made. <laughs> she she was yeah she was a senior in college. She wanted to study how Turkish rugs are made, so she actually got a Fulbright to go to Turkey and sit in a room that's not much bigger than this. In fact, it's the size <laughs> of this room, and sit down and learn learn the art of Turkish rug making from wow. uh, women in the community. That's really cool. I know, I know, and she got paid to do it. Holy cow! I know it's uh and it's it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, I, I just like, and I thought to myself, you know, there's no shortage of money to do the things that you want to do. I first went to Turkey in 2014 and that itself was this kind of an interesting story. Mm -hmm. Um, I had, I just, in 2014, Turkey was a, a vibrant, had a vibrant growing economy and it really was in 2012, 2013. It really was kind of a beacon of democracy mm-hmm. in the Middle East. It had uh, Turkey is uh, the modern day uh, sort of um, child of the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottoman Empire sort of reached into Europe. It reached into Northern Africa, and it reached into um, uh, reached into Eastern Africa. Uh, and Turkey seemed to have kind of gotten through the worst part of it. Worst part of sort of transferring from a, a, a an empire to a stable country in the Middle East. And people were, were just swing. People would, people would swear by Turkey. They would be like, Turkey's great. <laughs> uh, on a personal tip, on a personal matter, uh, at the time, I was dating a man, and we were just about to get serious. We were on the cusp of getting serious. You know, we could go this way, we could go that way. Knife edge. And as we were about to get serious, I, asked, I said to him, um, you know, I think we should take a trip just to see, you know, if we're really compatible. And uh, I think I th- I've heard great things about Turkey. And he said, 
no, 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 I don't want to go to Turkey. Um, because uh, he said because he, he said that he and his previous girlfriend had already gone to Turkey, and that was kind of their thing. And they didn't want really? to be uh, rude. Yeah. What? Yeah. yeah, he was a real delicate boy. <laughs> so... Uh, so that really, that really should have told me right from the beginning that this relationship yeah. was not going to go anywhere. But we continued to uh, uh, get on each other's nerves for another three or four months <laughs> before we broke up. But uh, and but then the, you went to Turkey, <laughs> and yeah. then I went to Turkey. Said, exactly, you know what? <laughs> it's my thing now. Exactly, okay. that's exactly right. It's my thing. It's my thing. Uh, exactly. Th- I thank you for reframing that for me. <laughs> So I went to Turkey, and I got to tell you, I mean, I, I, I didn't know anything about Turkey. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking that uh, flying to Turkey, that I was going to fly some type of, like, low spirit air discount flyer. I thought that there were going to be goats in the, <laughs> in the aisle. I thought that I was just going to have to eat sort of weird, uh, weird food that I had, you know, made out of... I don't know, like goat testicles or something. Oh, like God. I was, I was just like I, I don't. I mean, I had all these stereotypes in my mind. I really did. And then, and then I flew on Turkish Airlines, and I'm gonna tell you, Turkish Airlines is one of the best in the world. It literally is one of the three best airlines <laughs> in the world. Um, Turkish Airlines is so good. You know, as soon as the plane sort of hits, it's not even hitting cruising altitude because that takes like 30 minutes. As soon as it's 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 it's, it's ascending into the air the flight attendants are pulling out the food. And I remember being on like a two-hour flight, two-and-a-half-hour flight uh, from where I was staying in Europe. And, you know, for Americans, like a two-hour flight, you know, you're on your own. You got you got that packet of peanuts and yeah. that's it. For the yeah. day. Maybe a bottle of water. Literally. Exactly. exactly. You got to ask for that. But, no, on Turkish Airlines, they I think I we, we got fed twice, like full wow. meals. Oh, twice. wow. In two hours? In two <laughs> hours. In two, it's a luxury. Like, actual silverware. That's I was, crazy. you know, I remember, I remember it because I, I was astounded. It yeah, was like a chicken and rice and it had like fresh, warm rolls. Oh and we had God. a little dessert, which was chocolate mousse. And I remember t- turning my the the person next to me and asking her if she was going to eat her chocolate mousse because I would eat her chocolate mousse, put it in my purse and save it for later. Like it was, I mean, if that was my first sort of introduction to this idea that that um, maybe in the United States, even though uh, I think I'm a proud American, uh, I had gotten used to this notion. I'd gotten used to the fact that uh, flying commercial meant that I was going to be deprived. Yeah. I was just going to. You know, like, and we were just, we were just going to have to put up with it. We were going to have to put up with it. And then I went to Turkey and, and it was like, woohoo, that it was the type of soft diplomacy that I wanted to engage in. Turkish Airlines, you know, making sure everybody was taken care of. Anyway, so I get to, so I went to Turkey, um, yes, out of spite, and, <laughs> and had an amazing, amazing semester teaching at a university outside of the capital of Ankara. Uh, people think Istanbul is the capital, but it's actually it's like um, but the actual the capital it would like it would be the equivalent of thinking Louisville is the capital of, of Kentucky when it's actually Frankfurt. I taught at a school that was right outside, maybe maybe, and the school was a private university, and so they had buses going back and forth once an hour uh, for maybe eight hours every day. Uh, uh, so I would so I taught at this private school, had this incredibly positive experience, and 
uh, uh, just sort of taught two classes and in, in American studies. And in the course of having that Fulbright, again, which is connected with the State Department, uh, I met a State Department uh, foreign officer, a black woman. Uh, her name is Phaedra Gwynn. Uh, I think she's now posted in Paris. Uh, but uh, Ph- Phaedra Gwynn uh, and I went out to dinner one night, and she asked me if I had ever heard of the Afroturks. And I said, no, no, what, wait, what Afroturks? And she, and she told me what I, what I had come to understand, which is that the Ottoman Empire actually had a, pretty, had a thriving slave trade, but through the central and eastern part of Africa. We're talking like Sudan, um, Central African Republic, but also on the eastern side. Uh, through Egypt, um, uh, the the African trade that we understand is on the western side, mm-hmm, yeah. um, and the and the and the Atlantic Ocean, but there is another middle passage, and that is through the Sahara Desert. So, she's just telling me about how the Ottomans had this very vibrant slave trade, and that the descendants of that slave trade uh, live in Turkey, and um, slavery itself was officially abolished about 100 years ago in, ni- in like 1923 mm-hmm. in Turkey. So it hasn't been 100 years mm-hmm. since the abolition of slavery. And many of the p- descendants of those enslaved people live in Turkey. And many, many and uh, not many, uh, my point is, is that um, people remember when their parents were slaves. Wow. Uh, or people definitely remember when their grandparents were slaves. Um, and that that history had not been told outside of Turkey. That's so, so interesting. I know, I know. Oh. Fulbright, Fulbright, baby. <laughs> You're the Fulbright ambassador. <laughs> At this point, where were you in your career? How old were you? Uh, this was 2014. Okay. I'm 50 now, so that was when I was, I don't know, 42? Okay. 44? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Very interesting. Not very, not, not very long ago. Not very mm-hmm. long ago. So it's been, what, eight years well, though, yeah, it's been eight years, so I was maybe 42 or 43, yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, I, I had gotten tenure at the University of New Orleans where I was teaching, and I just um, was, felt, was feeling a bit restless. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's where I met the leader of the Afro-Turks at that point. And his oh, name was wow. Mustafa Olpak. Wow. Uh, I know it's, a, or Mustafa, but Mustafa uh, Olpak. And uh, he had written a memoir uh, about what it was like to live, to grow up being a proudly, a proud man of both African descent and Turkish descent. Um, I met him and we talked about things like civil rights, a civil rights movement, or what does it mean to be black in Turkey? And uh, one of the things that I think uh, people will be surprised to learn is that the United States actually has this reputation as, as having kind of the worst form of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, in 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 the world, so oh, wow, yeah, yeah. So 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 he would say he'd say things like you know, being a slave in Turkey was not like being a slave in in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's weird that he had to say that like distinction. <laughs> yeah, like, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, he said that there was no civil rights movement in Turkey because, according to him. There wasn't a need for a civil rights movement. That, that that as Turkish people, their rights had not been denied them. Their civil rights and human rights had not been denied them in the same way it had happened in the United States. What I thought was interesting, what draw, drew me in, though, was that 
when he, he and I were talking about what type of work that the Afro-Turks did, I, I, uh, he said, yeah, a lot of them worked uh, picking cotton in Turkey. Um, and I thought, what? Mm-hmm. That is, that's crazy. What? <laughs> because that is what we associate with uh, slavery in the United States. Yeah. But Turkish cotton is actually quite a profitable, profitable and lucrative uh, crop in Turkey. And, and, yeah, black people picked Turkey, picked cotton as well. So long story short, <laughs> Mustafa wrote a, a memoir and he handed it to me and he wanted me to tr- translate it into English and publish it in the United States. And that's what I'm that's what I'm doing now. Yeah. That's really cool. When do you think when do you think it will be done? Like just give a shout out. I the the manuscript is currently now at a university press. Um, they're looking looking it over and sort of checking out checking checking out its viability. But the, but the manuscript has been approved. Uh, I don't want to I don't want to jinx it and I don't want to put anybody <laughs> on spot. So mm-hmm. I so but I hope I'm hoping that they that the that the university press will come to um, will come to uh, that that will finally do the final version of the book contract and uh, and so forth. Hopefully in the next couple of months. That's awesome. Yeah. How amazing. Yeah. What fascinating work. I think that's one of the most amazing things when we get to talk to these professors and hearing uh-huh. their very niche like it's experience so cool. and diving yeah. into yeah. it. It's just and like that's something I never would have thought about and it's just fascinating. Exactly. So well, I like the you. way that you framed it. Really, I did because I, you know, I went to Turkey really not on a lark, but mm-hmm. just because I had heard great things about this about this country and the man that I was dating didn't want to go. Mm-hmm. And um, but I also went because I was curious about it. And yeah. because I was a professor, I'm always kind of looking for the next project. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so that's how kind of how it came together, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, um, and that's why I really, um, I really promote <laughs> the Fulbright, because sometimes you just don't know the ideas that you'll come up with. You yeah. just have – there was no way that I could have predicted that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that – I think that his memoir, Mustafa Olpak's memoir, has like he he was inspired by the miniseries Roots to write his memoir, and I think that his memoir could be the Turkish version of like a seven part miniseries called Roots. Oh, I do, wow. I do, th- I I believe that in my heart. Wow, how yeah. cool, how amazing, and to be a part of that history, like yeah. how enriching mm-hmm. that must be for you. And I think so, yeah. Yeah, it is enriching. Wow. Yes. That is so, so amazing. Shifting back a little bit, uh-huh. um, what spaces throughout history have black women shown up that we w- wouldn't normally think oh, of right. or expect? You know, uh, you had asked me that question earlier, which was like, which was, you know, who are some of my, um, the people who really influenced me? Um, I, I uh, as, a, as a historian of civil rights, I'm always, I'm never, I'm never, uh, uh, what's the word? I, uh, I'm always gratified to learn just how much black women did in civil rights and black power. Mm-hmm. Um, um, black women uh, um, maintain leadership roles um, throughout the movement. And of course, I think we're trying to extend the movement from being kind of post-World War II, from like, uh, it used to be like 1955 to 1965, and that's what people call the civil rights movement. But historically, um, there's this push to, to expand the civil rights movement to be kind of like from 1900 to 1980 or from like 1895 to 1980 or something like that. And um, that's because this idea that black people have been 
uh, uh, have been struggling or have been marching and protesting for civil rights for throughout the 20th century, not just that, that one 10-year period. And anyway, I, I am always struck by how much work women did right from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So they're like there's big names like Ida B. Wells mm-hmm. and Mary Church Terrell. There are um, names like um, the first woman to lead a, a bank. Oh, uh, what was her name? Shoot, uh, Maggie, Maggie Lena Walker. Um, there are women like Polly Murray. Um, um, but I, I actually, because I'm a historian, uh, I'm really influenced by the work of the, the groundbreaking work of other black women historians. Um, like uh, Nell Painter was a longtime professor and prolific author uh, at Princeton University. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, wrote a book. One of her many books was about how black people after the Civil War migrated out of the South into the West and called them, she called them the exodusters. Mm-hmm. Um, women like, uh, these are women who are still living that I see on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Like Darlene Clark Hine, she, she teaches now at um, Northwestern University. Um, uh, she's, she's been the head of the African American Studies program for a long time. Um, so many different, so many different women. Um, and I look to, I used, I actually have a list of them <laughs> that I wanted to thank. Uh, um, so they, so, so, uh, uh, so those women, um, really kind of laid the, the, the women that I interact with, they laid the groundwork for the work that I'm doing. Um, yeah. So they're, they're not household names, uh, but in the, in the field of history, particularly African-American history, they are foundational figures. They're founding mothers, you would even say. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, have there been, like, any, like, historic black female figures throughout history that, like, during your time, like, when you were, like, in college or, like, that you learned about, like, through, like, your research or anything like that? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of, yeah. Uh, for example, there's this, there's this woman, this his. This historic figure, her name is Maria Stewart. She was in the eight. She was sort of came to prominence in the eighteen forties, about ten to fifteen to twenty years before the Civil War, and so she was an abolitionist and she was a Northern abolitionist. And one of the things I really liked about her is that back in the eighteen forties, she was calling out black men for sexism and saying, and saying that black men were doing a disservice to the abolitionist movement by relegating women to these inferior roles of, of, of doing, the t- or doing the typing or doing the transcribing or, or ordering people around. She said black men really have to create space for black women mm-hmm. in the movement uh, itself, in the abolitionist movement. Um, that's really interesting because I think Stewart, yes, that that's, that's happening now. <laughs> like that's still a problem. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I think. So yeah. Exactly. So some of these issues kind of transcend time. They really do. Uh, 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 yeah. So you would think that yes, the issues like slavery uh, and but also sexism and misogyny. Yeah. That <laughs> we we're still still struggling with the with the aftermath of those issues. Yeah. So I would. I mean. So that's that. That was the first name that came to mind. Like Maria Stewart. Um, and how she basically was saying to black men, you know, you have to act right, black men. You have to basically, but she was a bit of a, you know, she was a bit of a, she pointed. She, you know, she said, black men, stop drinking, <laughs> stop smoking, stop, uh, you know, stop uh, fooling around, uh, act like upright citizens. 
that and also allow women into the movement mm-hmm. to have a more prominent role. Yeah, yeah. So I, I often go back to her and think of her uh, and the work that she did. How has my final follow-up to question to that is uh, since you spend so much time talk, like thinking also about other cultures that have had these sort of movements happen, how has how can we learn from those, learn from our history, and move forward into this new period that we have kind of entered into, yeah. um, where we are continuing? Do you know what I'm talking question, about? Good question because like I feel like the United States like we're not really good at confronting our history and like recognizing it like and that history is not over for example like the civil rights movement is not in the past it's still it's like transforming and like moving into like something like the same but like different exactly yeah sure 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 sure. well what do you think some of the what do you think Jordan (laughs) what do you think some of the lessons uh uh that people in the 20th century could learn from the 20th I think it's interesting because we definitely have different demons we have the media and we have different you know ways of, of going about um exposing these issues and talking about them and i mean it really does come back to humility and understanding that we're all humans and we're, we're all worth hu- human to have our own human rights and i think that kind of gets exposed and demeaned like we said before stereotyped into certain respects because of this media that isn't something that we necessarily had throughout the civil rights movement sure. before so i think that's very interesting and very different uh-huh. Going forward. Uh-huh. Well, media, social media is something, no, I would not, I would not have, could not have, you could not have predicted, uh, or at <laughs> least when I was, when I was 20 years old, when I was 25 years old, something like Facebook or something like Twitter, um, no, it was something that I could not conceive of, could not have yeah. conceived of. Um, uh, just as, again, as a kind of a point of, whatever, a point of departure, um, I was in Target yesterday. And I was and I was looking. I was walking through the um, the media section. You know, when I say media, like the CDs and the book section. And I saw a CD for this uh, movie that was very popular over the summer called Summer of Soul. A CD. So I thought, oh my goodness, I am going to buy the CD player, the CD because I still have a CD player, <laughs> and, and and I'm going to put this CD into my computer so I can listen to this music. What I thought was very interesting is that in the next aisle over, vinyl is making a comeback. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I saw yeah. a lot of vinyl records and thought, oh man, uh, again, you know, what was once old is is new again. Sure. Um, but that's a really but but in terms of social media, I think that it really is having a bad effect on movement planning or movement engagement because it goes so fast. And a lot of the things that we, uh, a lot of the things when it comes to sort of civil rights or human rights or economic rights um, need time for people to wrap their minds around. You know, I think, so I, so I think social media in many ways is being used as a distraction um, to just you know to you know get people ginned up, get people upset or outraged about something that is in fact very fleeting. When we have these long-term problems, long-term problem of sexism and racism, mm-hmm. and economic inequality, mm-hmm. um, those you know those require people to get activated and motivated. But it also requires people to sit down and think about what do we want over the long haul. You know, mm-hmm. um, and social media can. Um, distract people very easily so uh, yeah but I don't know maybe I'm speaking as a hypocrite I mean I do have I do have a Facebook account but I haven't checked it in a couple of years 
because I just I yeah that and that was another personal thing. I have Twitter, I but I but I just kind of log into Twitter to see what other people are liking. <laughs> <laughs> what are people talking about? Uh-huh. Uh, talking about a lot, but um. So as yeah. speaking to our college audience, like that you're talking to and growing yeah. up and growing up in the age of the media yeah. and kind of going through this turbulence of, you know, what's factual, what's true, what's untrue. Yeah. How can we decipher through those and, you know, come yeah. to our own terms on um, instead of really being distracted by all of these everyone's different opinions, That's leaving a, a comment, question. doing that. I also feel like it's what hard because like depending on like what your views are like on certain political things or like social issues like your algorithm is like screwed up sure like because they the want to cater to you yeah the things you're looking up are yeah. like the things Yet you're it's gonna confirmation see. bias it's exactly. what you want exactly Ex- so like it's hard to like even see what's factual or not because they're not right. going to really show you sure. the other side and it's getting worse now right. like it's getting like i feel like after like the last election it's just gotten so much worse that's right but like just seeing things that like you agree with or you want to see yeah. that is you, you you're saying really great things and i wish i had a solution to it i really do or at least i wish i could i wish i could be more hopeful um the example that i have in my mind is is tiktok which is fun right <laughs> tiktok is fun but they have a, but their algorithm has gone to the next level you don't meaning if you go on Instagram or you go on Facebook, you have to start liking things and disliking things or whatever for for the algorithm to to curate yeah uh, 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 sources of information. Evidently, TikTok, you don't even have to like things. <laughs> I mean, they already they for whatever reason, and maybe I got th- I got this wrong, so I put that out there. But somehow, TikTok is able to look at. Like, not the data on your phone, but it's able to say, okay, this person logged in and she's 50 years old and she's born in this area or this part of the country. Maybe Mm -hmm. she'll like this level. I haven't even done anything and TikTok is already sending me cute cat photos. Oh, my God. I actually didn't know that. I haven't been on TikTok in a minute. (laughs) That's crazy. I mean, I go on TikTok every day. (laughs) So that's just so interesting to see. I mean, but that is a lot of the people that I talk to are like, oh, yeah, I get I've heard that from TikTok. I get my news source from TikTok or yeah, it's just very fascinating how, I mean, also with our college generation, we don't Uh. sit and watch the news every morning and we don't read the newspaper every morning. So it's very interesting how we kind of, our attention span is so short that we are looking for those very quick Mm -hmm. moments where we can get as much information as possible. And I also feel like depending on like your major or just like who you are as a person, because like I know if you're like a political science major, you're going to follow the news, like you're going to watch it. Stay informed in class. And like, yeah, Yeah. and like same with like journalism majors, like you're going to look at the news because like it's what you're aspiring to be. So I feel like for the people who like don't, they're just like really behind. On your own island, like you have no idea. Yeah, yeah. Or you're just like forming your own opinions from like what your friends are saying and like that can be dangerous too. Mm -hmm. Shifting a little bit, um, Uh one of your articles I found very, very fascinating. Um, Can you talk about it? It's called Keeping Black Motherhood Out of Prison. In the, um, in the prison reform and women specifically, yeah. um, instead of men, which I feel like typically we hear so much about men, men getting, men getting into the trades, men, you know, the recidivism rate there and being less and not right. as much with women. Can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, yeah. That article actually came to me uh, because uh, the issue of mass incarceration mm-hmm. uh, had come into sort of the public sphere, uh, really with the publication of a great book by a black woman historian, uh, Michelle Alexander, mm-hmm. called The New Jim Crow. Um, and um, she, her book was all about 
the impact of of incarceration on the lives of black and brown men. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, do you know? Do you know? Like, do you, are you familiar with that? <laughs> um, it's okay. I've heard of the book, but I sure. haven't read it. But like, I know that like a lot of like when we talk about like prison reform and like mass incarceration, it is predominantly talking about black and brown men yeah. and like not women at all. That's so right. yeah, that's right. That's right. It's right. And that, that and that was the focus. Uh, I mean, really, uh, for example, like, like specific examples, if you are incarcerated, if you have a felony record uh, in Kentucky, you are no longer allowed to vote. Like your oh. right to vote is taken away for in perpetuity. Like Forever. Forever. Oh, wow. Unless the governor himself uh, restores it. So the person has to make a personal appeal to the governor. But if he doesn't do that, then he or she uh, loses the right to vote forever. Kentucky is one of just two states that does that. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. I did not yeah. know that, like, at all. Um, if you are, generally speaking, um, still, if you, are, if you have a felony record, uh, it's very, very difficult get a job even at walmart and i specifically remember walmart because president obama was had spearheaded or 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 at least established a program or wanted to get the major employers um in the country to take off of their employment applications the check here if you've ever been incarcerated Mm -hmm. Right, because what happens is that if you check that box, if you are if you're doing the right thing and check that box, your application goes in the trash. Yeah, and that is another avenue that, that I mean, getting a job even at Walmart uh, is an avenue to getting people out of poverty. Mm-hmm. So what prison does is impoverishes people. Yeah, um, if you've been in prison, uh, uh, you lose access to all types of social welfare. I mean, all types of social programs like Section 8, like food stamps. Um, And in some states, you can't join the military, um, which is another avenue. I did not know that, like, at all. (laughs) (laughs) I I was like, I'm shaking your fist at me. (laughs) So so prison um, has become a way to socially ostracize people, to push people out of... This, uh, out of the social arena, mm-hmm. you know, you can't don't have access to uh, a job, uh, don't ac- don't have access to college loans in mm-hmm. some places, don't have access to housing. So then all you have is access to prison. Yeah, exactly, it's, it's like exactly. a cycle. Right. Like you go exactly. to prison, then exactly. like you don't yeah. have like anything when you come out of prison. So then you're gonna go back right. to doing the things you probably shouldn't have been doing, That's and right. it's just like out of nobody's helping you. And yeah. Out of, yeah, prison is, prison didn't used to be that way. Mm-hmm. It was only after, starting with Ronald Reagan in the 1980s um, and the uh, three strikes law, three strikes and you're out law and mandatory minimum, minimums, and the, particularly in the 1990s under Clinton um, with, um, uh, yeah, with, with uh, these prison, um, these, these programs that actually gave more money to police departments. And uh, so prison didn't used to be that way. Um, mm-hmm. One of them, I know this is, a, I'm rambling, but I'm coming back. Um, and that is that one of the most influential figures in the 20th century in African-American history is Malcolm X, who was imprisoned. Yeah. Um, and in fact, honed his craft at debate 
at, um, at, at and became uh, an avid scholar and an mm-hmm. avid reader in prison yeah. because at that point, uh, prison was considered to be rehabilitation, and so there are all these programs sure. that you could you could partake of in prison. Yeah. Like his prison in, in Massachusetts had a debate club, yeah. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and you know, and was also training people to get uh, to ha- carry on their lives. Outside of prison. Mm-hmm. So with all of this in mind, sorry, this is the answer to your question. With all of this in mind, I um, began to think about what were middle class black women doing in like the 1890s and 1880s, mm-hmm. uh, 1880s and 1890s. Uh, and how were they addressing the issue of incarceration of working class or poor, poor women? Uh, the issue for them in the 1890s, 1900s, 1910s, up into the 1930s, really, was that African Americans were, um, in many southern states, particularly Alabama and Mississippi, uh, were often being arrested for ticky-tack fouls, Mm ticky-tack crimes, spitting on the sidewalk, um, uh, um, eating peanuts after 6 Mm -hmm. p.m. It was like any excuse (laughs) that they could give. Exactly. And they were being rounded up into, um, into work camps into prisons, and they were working. Uh, it's, co- it's called convict leasing or um, the chain gang. Uh, and when I wrote the article, there had been a couple of really great books that had just come out about how black women were, uh, draw, black women got caught up in the convict leasing game uh, in Georgia. So that at one point, I think if the stats are right, um, like 90% of black women involved in convict leasing in Georgia. Now, 90% of the women who were uh, incarcerated in Georgia were black women. That's crazy. I know, and like the, like the year 1895 or uh, 1900. Wow. So really, really, so my question was, well, what are, what are middle-class black women doing um, to sort of help that out? And that's where, um, that's where that article came from, uh, trying to get people to uh, think about that, again, like you just said, Carrington, mm-hmm. that, um, that working on mass incarceration isn't about just, wasn't, was, wasn't about just helping black men and boys. It was mm-hmm. about helping black women and girls. Mm-hmm. And the way that they framed uh, uh, that help was to say that this is, a, this, this is affecting black motherhood. This is affecting black women's ability to be good mothers mm-hmm. uh, by going to prison. And so, and so that's how they were able to gain traction uh, at that time by making it, not, yeah, I would say by making it kind of a feminist issue, but, mm-hmm. but really, but making it a motherhood issue. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we've got to basically, basically saying we've got to help black women. We've got to make sure that they, get, that they are not sexually assaulted mm-hmm. in prison, which, and that was rampant. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there were reports of women, of course, uh, being assaulted and then getting pregnant. Mm-hmm. In prison, and that meant that they were being abused by the the guards. Um, making but so they focused on that, and they focused on um, making sure that women had jobs after they got out of prison that they could be gainfully employed. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, so that's what I wrote about. How impactful! How really? wow! Oh, nice to say that. Thank you. Thank I you. Just, I just think that's such an important topic that like a lot of people just like wouldn't talk about or wouldn't think uh-huh. to talk about because like. Especially, like, with black women, it's uh-huh. such a topic where, like, they're strong, they can do it, it's okay, 
we don't really have to think about them. Mm-hmm. Let's focus on black men. There being like police brutality, like even with that movement, like it's still skewed predominantly towards focusing on black men. Yeah. Yeah. And like another topic I love to talk about is your photography. Uh-huh. I looked yeah, I through your photography website and yeah, your photographs that. are so pretty. And I was just wondering why a lot of them were in black and white. Mm-hmm. Is there like a specific specific reason why you chose to like edit them in black and white? Oh yeah, that's a really good that's a really good that's a really good question. When I first did that photography project of African-American men in New Orleans, really, I think my two uh, most direct influences were Gordon Parks and Deborah Willis. Um, Gordon Parks is very well known, but Deborah Willis is also well known, but in certain circles. And they both did a lot of their photography of African-Americans in black and white. Not all, mm-hmm. but some of the, some of the, uh, some of the most f- famous Gordon Parks images are of like Muhammad Ali mm-hmm. or Malcolm X um, uh, and and some and his most famous image I think is of the woman who's holding a mop in front of the link in the Lincoln Memorial. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I forget the name. Deborah Willis is a um, photographer, but also like a, a, a historian, and she looks at the representation of African Americans in photography. And both of them, like I said work in black and white. And so I was really trying to pursue that. I was really mm-hmm. trying to do that when I when I was taking my pictures. Yeah, well, I really like them. They're You're really nice good. That. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank and you. I love the the story that you tell with music. There's a lot of mig music, um, musical uh-huh. pieces and musical instruments that they're holding. Or, yeah. Um, yeah. I loved that. And there was a lot of sports like um, teams. I loved the picture of the man with his arms up and the kids. It was a kids um, football team. How, mm-hmm. like, powerful that was and how like that role model seeing him that way i think pictures just tell such a beautiful story and You're that's nice very very that. interesting yeah. thanks 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 i mean i mean yes yes i appreciate <laughs> the compliment very much how did you pivot over into photography when you did you already have experience with oral history and looking into other um mediums and then you moved into more photos or was it the other way around it was the other way around okay. it really is it's kind of the accidental Photographer, I um, had just moved to New Orleans and uh, to uh, into a new job at the University of New Orleans. And I just, I had bought, you know, at that point, I think it was 2007. I knew it was 2008. It was 2008. But I had just bought sort of a fancy digital camera. In 2007, digital cameras were like, were, you know, if they were 10 megapixels, you know, <laughs> that was like, that's amazing. <laughs> it's, this camera offers, I mean, now we have like, we have on our phones like twenty megapixels yeah. or something yeah, or like yeah. fifteen, you know, you know, you whip it out. But at the time, um, it was like like you know, cameras were were not basic because it's a digital camera, but but uh, uh, but they were they just seemed like they they had opened up in a whole new uh, environment, uh, a no new way of looking at the world, and and they had democratized it um, because cameras had been somewhat expensive and they can be an expensive hobby. But by if you if you could have a digital camera, you know it made it much more accessible, mm-hmm. uh, photography much more accessible. So I um, really just had this. I bought this camera. I wanted to learn how to use it. I took a class at my university, and I think one of the things that the professor really who wasn't who was not much older than you are, he was he had just graduated himself, and he was a a lecturer, and he had said, you know, if you really are want to do this, 
you got to keep your camera in your car at all times because you never know what you'll see. You'll never know. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I did that. And at the time, in 2008, 2009, New Orleans was still recovering uh, from Hurricane Katrina. And mm-hmm. so uh, in, a, in a big picture way, I was really upset at the way New Orleans, particularly black men in New Orleans, were being depicted in the national media. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, at, at that New Orleans had been overrun by a city of thugs, mm-hmm. and really, and setting the city on fire. Because I lived in New Orleans, and in my middle-class, mixed-race, black neighbor, middle-class neighborhood, uh, mixed-race neighborhood, uh, all I saw were people rebuilding their houses. Yeah. Trying to start, yeah, trying yeah. to start fresh already. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That's all I saw. Yeah. So I thought that I would, you know, just sort of document what I saw. And that's when, that's how that photography sort of thing came about, which is mm-hmm. to, uh, not 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 with any grand plan in mind, but to say, this is what I see going on in New Orleans um, that really counteracts that narrative, contradicts that narrative of sort of black thuggery everywhere. Um, you know, New Orleans uh, has a problem with crime, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it has a problem, really. But a lot, of, but but so much of New Orleans at that time, and I think still now, is about trying to recover. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's the spirit that I wanted to. And it's a city of great music and great food, <laughs> so I was able to um, uh, capture that as well. So as someone who always looked into the history as a historian, how impactful was it that you now were creating your own version of history and you were now oh, capturing your yeah. own perspective? I had never why was that important? I didn't, I've never thought of it that yeah, way. Yeah, because like taking pictures, <laughs> that's like preserving history. Yeah. I know, way. I know. I should be more thoughtful. <laughs> I know, I should be, I really should be more intentional. But it was really, yeah. it was just, it was just like, you know, what can I do yeah. to uh-huh. sure. preserve this history? Um, and I always, I do want to come back to it, or at least I, I think, I think I took thousands of pictures. I just didn't know what it was that I wanted to say. And sometimes it takes, sometimes, yeah, sometimes it takes a few years to figure, figure that out. Yeah. I, yeah. Sure. Yeah. So it started off as just being kind of, not necessarily random, mm-hmm. but again, started off as taking a picture of what I saw in my neighborhood. And it wasn't until much later that I thought, oh, there is a there is a unifying narrative and theme here. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It has yeah. been such a pleasure getting to know you and getting to know oh, your story. Nice and yes. oh my gosh, I feel like I've learned so much in the yeah, hour that we've, we've been talking. Talking to you, it's been so amazing. Oh wow, yeah, it's it's been great for me too. Thank you, thank you for uh, indulging all of my stories. <laughs> we love it. Could you tell us more? Huh? Could you tell our audience more where they can find more about you? Do you have a website yeah. or any social media or any specific things that people could find? Huh. Well, I do have the website that's on my faculty. If you go to the history department page, uh, I have a website. Uh, that, uh, I think it's Nikki Brown Photos com because that's the that's the provider. Mm-hmm. You know, I I spend I teach half my classes in history, and the other class, the other half in African American studies. Mm-hmm. So definitely check out the African American Studies website uh, for courses that I teach and lots of other professors teach. Um, and really keep an eye on the Commonwealth Institute of Black Studies, which is a new institute at the University of uh, University of Kentucky. I almost said University of New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> at the University of Kentucky. Keep an eye out on that because they are all about knowledge production. Um, 
Uh, and they're all about sort of bringing people in and having really deep, rich conversations. Awesome. Amazing. Thank you so, so Thank much. You. Really You're welcome. It. You're welcome. It's been really great. Thank you guys so much for listening to our 15th episode. We had so much fun talking with Professor Brown. Make sure to look at her, look into her on her socials and website and celebrate Black History Month. Thank you so much again and have a great day. Thank you.